Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Scott, how are you, mate? Good, thanks, Chris. How are you getting on? I'm just absolutely over the moon. Friends at home, this is why I started a podcast. I'm talking to an airline pilot who flies the Dreamliner, which is one of the the big ones. And I get to ask Scott everything that I've ever wanted to ask an airline pilot. Um, can we just get straight into it, Scott? emergencies because you've had a few up there haven't you and it and on 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 air crash investigation that's what it's always about you see pilots fighting to stop the machine um smashing into the ground and obviously on air crash without without success um over, over to you yeah i think when you look at programs like that you think every third flight is an emergency of some sort right but the amount of major emergencies that happen are so so minute so i think the first thing i would say is that the amount of times where the aircraft is in any form of danger is just absolutely minuscule um saying that i i did have a quite an interesting period of my career where i probably went for about eight months of having an abnormal amount of emergencies happened to me. Um, and it was actually great. It was right at the beginning of my career. And um, I think when you look at it, you think, oh, how unlucky am I for having all of these emergencies back to back to back? And at the time, I kind of thought that. But looking back now, it, it kind of set the foundation for the confidence um, and the capability that I'm now able to go in to the cockpit with and, and fly with. Uh, I fly a lot more relaxed now because of the emergencies I've had. I've had probably two or three of the most severe ones you can get or in the most severe bucket. And um, I, again, I would preface it by saying even the severe ones, they're very, very manageable most of the time. Um, so again, when we're in the front, we're training for the most severe things to happen. And so we're more afraid with those than the little things that you might not even know that goes on on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. Let's. I'm going to come on and talk about going through the checklist, etc. I should point out, friends of home, if you're not aware, I'm got my private pilot's license and that's remember that's the first stage of becoming a com commercial pilot so that's another reason <laughs> that i'm really pleased scott's joined us today um but yes you've had engine failure yeah so i had a reverser unlocked indicator which um everyone is probably familiar that when you land and you see the engines the there's flaps that come out on the engines that reverse the flow of the uh thrust and so the aircraft down. So when we were taking off, we actually had an indication that one of those reversers had opened up and, and with it, we had a lot of buffet with it. So when you have the two things, when you have like a physical sensation of, oh, we've, we're feeling a bit of buffet here mm -hmm. and we've got this indication that the reverser is unlocked. Obviously that can be one of the most serious things because if you've got one engine producing thrust in one direction and one engine producing thrust in the other direction, you can quickly become out of control um, and spiral. So the procedure there is to shut the engine down as quickly as possible um, if you can confirm that it might be accurate. And so we were only a, at about 5,000 feet climbing out um, of an airfield. And luckily we were in the UK and we we're at our home base. Um, but 
the captain and I, I remember him looking at me and, you know, we, you go through this procedure. So every single time a, a, an emergency happens or a bell or a whistle goes off, you have a set procedure that you just flick into. And this basically cages a chimp. It stops a startle factor. And so the first thing you do is you have a breath and then you read what's on the screen. And then the person flying will normally say something like, okay, I have control so that they're the ones that are running the show. Um, and so at the time I was, um, I was flying. So I said, okay, I have control. And then you, as you probably will know from your flying, you aviate, navigate, communicate. So our aviate part flying the aircraft is to make sure we can understand what the aircraft is doing. So what mode is the aircraft actually in? Like, what have we lost? Because if we've lost the autopilot and we can't see it up there, we then need to start flying the aircraft. You know, if we've lost the auto thrust, then we need now need to be responsible for the thrust levers. So we have a look at what the aircraft is doing, what modes it's in. Um, and then we say to ourselves, okay, are we flying in the safe pit of space? Do we need to stop our climb? Do we need to go divert somewhere else or head back to, to base like immediately? Or are we okay for the time being just continuing on the cleared path that we're, we're flying on? Um, and then the final thing is, who do we need to speak to right now? Um, and a lot of the time, it's either a mayday call um, and then stand by for our intentions. And then it buys you some time so that they can start clearing the airspace around you and prioritizing you. But yet you can then buy yourself some time to deal with the problem first before then letting them know of their intentions. And that's essentially what we did. We um, we got ourselves, we declared a mayday. We got ourselves in a nice chilled piece of airspace. We leveled off. Um, and then, yeah, we went through the initial stages to secure the engine, so shut down the engine. Um, and then it's all about planning and getting it back in, uh, getting it back in for a safe landing. One of the things I like about uh, commercial flying or, or certainly um, flying the jumbos as opposed to um, the small craft, smaller craft. It's the it's like a systems approach, isn't it? You know, it's lots. It's ma it's basically sat managing different systems, almost flying from like a technical perspective, um, but with the ability, obviously, to to get hands on if need be. And I want to talk about that because there was that amazing incident where the pilot crabbed a 747 into a remote second world war was it runway on a on a on an island and we'll, we'll come on to that but what i wanted to ask scott is in that incident where you realize it's an engine issue did you do do you always go to the checklist or is it some emergencies like there's not enough time you've just got to make a, a snap judgment or an accurate judgment and go for it yeah I, I think that the snap judgments will have been pre-briefed before we've taken off so before we've even moved the aircraft so when all of the passengers are getting onto the aircraft we're briefing what happens what are we expecting to happen if everything goes right and then we're also briefing what happens when things go wrong and we're looking at different scenarios what are the worst scenarios that happens if we're on the takeoff roll what would we do if this happened what would we do if we got into the air and x happened um and so we will always brief that if we need to return immediately it will probably be for fumes so smoke or fumes in the flight deck or in the aircraft for instance so if we're on fire and we can't put the fire out we'll be immediate returning and we'll come up with a couple of scenarios so that in our head when we see it pop up 
if we think, ah, that's one of the ones that we briefed, we automatically go into the B-roll of what we've briefed of, okay, we said we were going to brief to get back onto the ground and this is how I'm going to fly the approach. And then we just need to confirm with ourselves, is that still relevant? Yes, that's still relevant. Okay, let's execute that then. And then we've already divvied up the tasks between us because we've briefed it before we get on the ground. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to almost empty and and reduce um, your capacity bucket so that you have as much capacity as possible during those high workload times. And so, yeah, if we're looking to return back to the uh, um, to the to the airport for any reason, then we'll have briefed the immediate returns. Um, and likewise, if it's an engine failure, then we don't need to get on the ground as quickly as possible because everything is contained and the aircraft can fly perfectly well on one engine. I mean, believe it or not, funny funny story, but when we got onto the ground with this engine failure, um, we'd done all the PAs and we'd landed and we'd gone onto stand and the passengers, as they were getting off and onto a different aircraft, a lot of them were turning around to each other and going, why are we back at, why are we back at this airport again? Like what's going on? And they didn't even know we had an engine failure. Like that's how good the modern jets are at performing with just one engine. And so, yeah, we'll have pre-briefed anything that requires an immediate reaction mm -hmm. everything else is all about you talked about systems like the most important system to manage is yourself and how you operate under pressure um and and i guess that's the key really is to build yourself time in either on the ground or in the air so that you can make a more conscious and more informed decision mm. what about chesney sullenberger what what do we think about that i i, I thought that's one of the coolest things i've ever seen I mean, yeah, that's when intuition and experience and just pure, yeah, pure exposure and experience and intuition comes into play, right? Because I don't think that many people would brief what happens if we have a dual engine failure and both of our engines get hit with birds because it is once in a million lifetimes sort of scenario. I mean, it's so unbelievably rare. And obviously, we've got to manage what we're going to brief and what's likely to happen. Um, so for him to do what he did was unbelievable, like unbelievably, um, unbelievably good. And yeah, he had the conditions that go with him and, you know, the atmospheric conditions and the, the, um, river was nice and calm and all the rest of it, but yeah, incredible, incredible, uh, feat. And yeah, one, one that I don't think we should take lightly. He says, we're going in the Hudson and, and the air traffic control says, I'm sorry. <laughs> He's waiting for an airport, and he said, "No, it's these calls out a river." And um, the bit I loved about it is when he's made he's he's made the decision to land in the Hudson, and he turns to his co-pilot and says, "Any ideas?" I just thought that was so professional. You know, maybe the guy's got a better idea than him, um, but he forgot one thing, didn't he? Do you know what it was? Oh, I don't even know. No, tell me. <laughs> um, if he'd gone through the checklist for coming down into water, the last thing on it is sh there's a valve you can shut, and it's it ditching and it, valve. Yeah. yeah, ditching valve, and it and it makes the aircraft watertight because by the time the last person got off, it was kind of coming up to their waist or something. Um, but you know, who, who, I think I still give him a ten. Yeah, not here to criticise. Um, and, and going back to that point, you know, the, him asking that open question to his co-pilot, that's, that is the sign of good leadership. It's never assumed that, right, I've got command, I'm doing this, I'm, I'm going to take control. It's all just like, what have I missed? 
what what ideas have you got that I haven't thought about? You know, because nine times out of ten, if you're flying the aircraft and your capacity is up here, the other guy's looking around with a little bit more capacity and probably has a good idea or a or, or a good insight that will add to your decision making model. So yeah, really, really good question um, to ask. And one that if the guy's not asking that question, they're probably at max capacity or they're not great at what they do. Yeah. Yes. You've had fatalities on board deaths how how did that come about um so that was quite a odd flight that was flying um back into london and uh the the chap that passed away sadly he was actually reasonably ill and from what we heard he was he was coming back to england to be with his family and so he was traveling with a nurse with him and um yeah he he was actually in the front toilet like just outside the flight deck so if you can remember there's like the flight deck door and then there's a toilet right next to it mm. and um the the first thing we heard was sort of middle middle of france uh we got a phone call from the cabin crew saying that the elderly chap had basically um passed out on the toilets and they were administering cpr to him so with our little cockpit video screen we can see outside into the front galley and we could see that there were cabin crew around him giving him CPR. And um, and yeah, their drill is to work on the individual and try and save their life um, until the point at which they're declared dead. And you can't declare somebody dead and, unless you have a specific qualification. And so, yeah, we, our, our duty as pilots was to get the aircraft safely on the ground as quickly and as expeditiously as possible. So we have a full procedure that we go into. And, you know, luckily at the time, I think I probably diverted four or five times due to medical emergencies. And so in my head, I was just like, okay, I know exactly, I know exactly what we're doing here. So I was like, I'm quite happy to take command of this situation and, and um, divvy up the different responsibilities to everyone and it, you know one person is essentially flying the aircraft as quickly as they can to a to a gate so that they can slow the aircraft down and land safely so you want to almost maximize expeditiously to a point where you can then slow it down and not cock it up at the end because if you fly so fast and cock the last little bit up then you have to go around and you're wasting more time right mm -hmm. so um so yeah that's that was the the name of that game and we landed and pulled onto stand and um i remember the just looking at the skipper when we were coming down the final approach actually and they were still working on him and i remember from a previous incident that we had that the feedback that we got was try and clear all of the exit ways for landing because emergency exits you you might have one person that's that's in a bad way but actually if you have an emergency that happens during that landing process then that will block the exit for hundreds of others so you turn a one fatality into a hundred fatality mm -hmm. so i remember looking at the skipper and saying listen i know this is a bit odd but we need to put the gentleman in a seat and secure for landing before we actually land here. Um, and so I can remember him pushing his way out of the flight deck door and um, putting the passenger up and getting him secure and then everyone around him secure first. And then as soon as we landed again and we were off the taxiway, um, the cabin crew were basically back to work trying to save this gentleman's life. And so they did a, a phenomenal thing. For us as pilots, it's, it, it's quite easy. It's just managing managing your emotions and managing a flight at a slightly faster pace you know um whereas for those guys there's there's a lot more a lot more at stake so mm. to speak 
How was it for the people on board? Because I'm imagining it's probably the first dead body that, you know, a lot of certainly young people would, had had seen. It was first, it was the first dead body that I had seen. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know if, I don't know if because of the adrenaline that goes through your body when you're operating in that environment, you know, I just remember sort of seeing them and trying to get the resolution solved as possible, try and get the right people on board, try and get it taken care of. But um, the passengers, generally speaking, what happens when that happens in the in the forward part of the aircraft is that they'll they'll limit the visibility to it. Um, and then they'll also disembark from the back. So that's what happened with us. They disembarked all the passengers from the back. So thankfully, a lot of the passengers didn't see anything. Um, and so it was able to almost be managed a little bit more subtly and does the Dreamliner have a first class section? I mean, is it like curtained off? Yeah, it does. Yeah. So they have um, first business and um, premium and normal economy um, on the nines and tens. Um, the eights, they don't. I think they just have business class. But so this, was, they... this was on an Airbus, though. This um, this ah, incident okay. happened on an Airbus. So it was a slightly smaller aircraft with, with less um, less opportunities to to do it but the guys did an incredible job i remember thinking like wow you guys have phenomenal the way that you handled that situation with really tight spaces and um they had obviously his wife and the nurse with them as well and they were emotional and um yeah i remember thinking like these guys are phenomenal at what they do when they need to be mm. scott moving on so there was a cracking film that was out I think about four, four or five years ago i can't remember the name of it, but it was denzel washington and he played he played a pilot that had substance misuse issues mm. uh, and and he liked to party take his stewardesses back to his hotel and i it struck a chord with me because i've you know experienced addiction all my life or all my adult life and it was one of the things i had to consider when i was thinking about becoming a commercial pilot which i made a decision against based on 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 something else to be honest it was essentially I, I just wondered how much life experience I'd be missing out on if I was sat in a cockpit for so many hours mm. but going back to the alcohol thing you've got long flights and you get to the other end you're checking into a hotel obviously on your own you you're sat probably in a bar for long evenings you know it must become a problem for I'm saying the older pilots. It's a bit yeah. like uh, in 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 the mili in the military, drinking becomes a real problem because when you get to um, sergeant and above, you have a mess, mm. and so you can go in the mess at lunchtime and have a pint, and then of course that becomes having two pints. Then you maybe not seeing your family for a week, so you go back to the mess in the evening, and and the same on a on on a ship. And a, a lot of the older chaps develop a real drinking problem but of course they're not in charge of an airliner can you enlighten us to anything in this sort of area yeah i, I mean i must have been quite lucky because i think the guys that i fly with generally speaking like in actual fact all of them that i've flown with have been pretty damn good at having a cutoff point and being like i don't drink past this point because that's my own personal limit and i think that is kind of the key is like understanding your personal limit because you have the the legal limits you know you can't drink anything for 12 hours proceed for, for eight hours proceeding and you can't drink more than a tiny little bit for 12 hours proceeding and it sort of goes back so there's there's 
black and white by law limits, but then there's also personal limits. And I think everybody that I've flown with seems to understand and have a grip of their own personal limits when it comes to drink, having some beers down route or, you know, having a good night out. Uh, most people are generally pretty hard when it comes to this is what time I need to be in bed to get this much rest to then wake up to to fly and be at my best when I'm in the cockpit. So I think that from that point of view, it's quite nice to know that everybody has their own limits and their own time schedule that they're working to on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you fly with lots of guys that like going out for beers and it becomes a habit um, that they'll have a couple of beers when they land and um, they've, they've got a couple of days down route or something. But it's um, for, for me personally, I've kind of knocked that on the head. I don't, I don't really drink at all anymore. And it's because, again, from my own personal point of view, um, altitude when you're flying, um, obviously, thins the blood a bit um it reduces your um ability to get better it reduces your ability to um fight off diseases um and it reduces your resilience so for me i just think it's actually quite hard work to be dehydrated set up at altitude and then land have a couple of beers and then go to a hotel room that's got air conditioning so more dehydration um it's it's not a good combo so yeah, I think generally speaking, people are pretty pretty good at it this time. But I, like you said before, you hear stories of back in the day, but it's um, I think it was way before my time. Yes, yes, and I'm I've got a kind of sneaky feeling like the Russian pilots and the, the, probably more stuff going on there that we've than we're ever going to get to hear about. I've seen some interesting photos of though the um, what do you call them these days? Flight flight attendants, isn't it? In my day, it was a stewardess, yeah, but but now it's is it more appropriate just to call the girls flight attendants? Yeah, I think they ch they change it every every now and again, don't they? They seem to change it. I always yeah. seem to get it wrong. It's um, yeah, in flight in flight crew or yeah. Yeah, like I, I saw. I think it was a YouTube video someone had posted, and there was a uh, some quite inappropriate pictures of these Russian pilots and all their their flight attendants. Um, mm -hmm. Have you got a favorite destination where you get a few days off and you you get the chance to travel or just kick back on a beach or somewhere? Yeah, I mean, it sounds pretty sounds pretty cringy to say, but I guess for me, I quite like the change. I quite like being in different countries at different times of the year. Um, and I guess that's the beauty of the job is that you can kind of pick to be in South Africa during the British winter and you can try and get a trip over to South America or the Far East to get a little bit of warmth. I'm, I'm someone who definitely likes warmth. Um, and so in the summertime, there's different places that are just like become more and more popular with people because they're nice places to be during that season. Um, and so it, so it kind of changes. I love South Africa in the wintertime. I always feel like I'm winning life and I've got a bit of time um, in the sun as opposed to everybody obviously being stuck back at home and, and being in the grey and miserable. So, uh, yeah, it depends. I'd say it depends on what season of the year it is, really. And what are your favourite places? Anywhere you can recommend to people? I mean, South Africa to me has a bit of everything. Um, if, you're, if you're someone who loves the outdoors, I mean, you can be cage diving with great white sharks one day and bungee jumping and doing a load of cool extreme sports one day and then the next day you'll be in the winelands chilling out with a couple of beautiful wines and um and then you'll go you know it's it's one of the most incredible places actually um Kruger, so kruger national park 
Kruger, yeah, safariing, one of the most amazing things you can do. You'd, you'd do well to get a safari booked in for a for a trip, um, for a work trip. They're normally not that long, but um, but yeah, South Africa is really, really cool. South America's cool. Um, you know, Santiago, Chile, uh, if you haven't been to to uh, to Santiago in Chile, it's amazing. You can go up into the Atacama Desert and it's um it's one of the most it's one of the least polluted places in the world to see stars. Um and so you could go up there and just see the most incredible night stars um constellations. It's a phenomenal place and very, very special. I don't think there are too many places like that on Earth where it's there's not a million people there queuing up to see it or anything. Um so yeah. I camped in the Atacama and there's me. I just set my tent up, got in. I was getting some food on bloody truck pulls up <laughs> in the middle of the Atacama desert and out steps a, a, a ranger. And, he, you know, he's just coming to check that I wasn't, uh, I probably gave me some words of warning about you can only stay one night or something, or that's, that's certainly how it is in our national parks here. But yeah, that was quite funny. Did, did they've got that, um, funicular rail railway have you been on that one i haven't actually no it's like a cable car but it goes on a rail one of those one it, uh, okay it, what in in santiago in, or? yeah i think it's santiago it goes, uh, i've been yeah up to the up to the high point where you can have a look at the city. yes yeah yeah that's that's very close to our hotel actually so yeah that's quite a popular thing for the guys to do but do it, they, it's one of it's one of those things that I, I love places and it's like it's a little bit like costa rica or somewhere like that you know there is so many things for you to do that um in chile that you can be in the winelands you can go to the beaches you can do white water rafting you can ride horses in the mountains you can you know um do amazing cycling you can go and see the stars and and the flamingos in the on the salt flats it's one of those places it's just like whatever you like to do it's within an hour's drive of of um of Santiago, which is quite cool. Scott, there's two things I love to do because I feel utterly relaxed and just on top of the world. One of them is flying on, I mean, as a passenger, knowing that I'm going about on a trip and, and it's for me, it's just instant relaxation, which I don't, don't get a lot of. Well, but the why other... is that? Is that because you just get to unplug? Like, yeah. Oh yeah. It's like, right. You've done the worrying, you've done the power. How's my passport valid? Do I need a visa for the, the, the you know, I've got to, maybe I'm traveling to 12 different countries. Have I got my, is my machete in my main bag, not in my bloody hand luggage? That's, I'm exaggerating not, a bit. It's not but, a problem a lot of us have. But. <laughs> no, I've I've always, because I've been in the Amazon a few times, have a machete and just got to, obviously put it in your big bag but then you think like oh have i got my pen knife is that right i've done that then there's a few you know a few other things like this then there's just the fact of getting away from this life you know getting away from england and all the stresses of strains of work da, da, da. and once you get on that plane that worry just stops for me it, it's too late now you you bought the ticket you are taking a ride there's nothing you can do about it you are off on your adventure all those preparation stuff is behind you sit back kick back can I have a beer beer please thank you and just it's great I love it so much and I'm going to come on and talk about 
airline food as well because that's another thing that i absolutely love which i know a lot of people will find abhorrent the budget for airlines has changed a lot hasn't it in the olden days as a pilot i think you had an expenses account and da 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 i'm reckoning they probably put you up in the best hotel in town how how is that now what are, what are the perks what kind of hotels do they put you up in and do you enjoy being in in the hotel because sorry i'm not sure if i said my second favorite thing in life <laughs> is staying in hotels <laughs> i don't care if it's like a travel lodge it's like this is my room you know um Oh, I can make a cup of tea and coffee. I'm I'm easily pleased, Scott. You know, I feel like you should have made that decision to become a pilot. To be by the sounds of it, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, you can you only hear stories about how good it was, but I think that the one thing I would say is that no matter how good the older boys are saying that their time was, the the ones that are truthful still say they were still moaning about so there was always still something to moan about or something that wasn't great or something that they weren't happy with. And so, yeah, we look back and and look at maybe their expenses that they used to get paid or you know their their pensions used to be obscene like really really unsustainable um now i guess it's more of a leaner more competitive business model um which is which is fair enough um so it's not quite as glamorous on that respect but one thing i would say is that hotel wise generally speaking um they're they're pretty pretty good sometimes they're phenomenal um, and you really, really get a treat. Um, other times there you you take them and you know that, you know, there's there's other things you've got to look for on that trip. But you know, when you when you see somebody new, it kind of reminds you that every single trip has something good to offer if you want to look for it, if you want to be the person that looks for it, or you can just moan about oh, the hotels out of town and you don't get this and the breakfast's awful and xyz um or you could say oh actually no this place has a really good this um and so it, it kind of depends on how you approach each trip you can either get on board and be really really looking forward to something that you haven't done for a while or an opportunity that you don't normally get or you can get on board and moan about the crap things that i, I guess are present in everybody's job you know they always there's always crap in in every job and there's always good stuff mm. yes exactly i guess being a pilot you're kind of part of an institution aren't you a bit like the military a bit there's all blokes was always going to complain <laughs> about mm. something um scott just going back to the the uh, uh luke my manager wanted me ask, to ask you didn't he about the mile high club if if if, if i'd be a pretty I, short I, answer i think <laughs> you don't got no stories to tell us no stories no experience no anything i think it's a myth but <laughs> yeah i'm sure there's a lot of people out there that would um would challenge that I, again i think there used to be a thing that it was quite well known that the the dashing pilot could score quite easily with the flight attendants is it's a funny one really i decided when i started flying that i was never going to date or get with any any work colleagues um, and that was just a personal decision from me because you hear so many horror stories and you know if you want the out of me answer to that story then you just have to look at how many couples are pilots and cabin crew like there's a lot of people that are in relationships uh marriages that are pilots and crew and i think the reason why it works so much is because it's a it's a funny lifestyle to buy into and not many people understand the the lifestyle that you're involved in and you know you can be away for six days 
like intimately with a group of people and then you're coming back for three days but you're getting a wednesday thursday friday off where your other partner if they're in a normal nine to five are working and then you go away again and you're and it's a very very weird bubble to live into um and in terms of landing back at nine in the morning and then going to bed until for a few hours in, in during the daytime and having to get your sleep here and missing this and missing weekends and it's it's a very weird bubble to be in and so I, I think you see a lot of relationships because they understand each other you're not getting in and saying okay you've been away for four days here's this here's that all the rest of it you kind of understand that actually it doesn't quite work like that like you you need to give me a bit of time to recover or i need to give you a bit of space to do this so um i can i can see why it works but for me personally um i just thought the the cleanest way to go through life is to to not look in on that avenue <laughs> yes yes of course um so airline food i was on a flight once and uh i ate my meal and the chap next to me had fallen asleep so his meal just stayed on the on the tray on the you know the pull down table or pull out table whatever don't it was. say what i think you're about to say <laughs> no he he woke up for a bit and i just turned to him and i said are you gonna eat that and he's like no 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 i said do you, do you mind if he's like no 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 go so i ate my meal and let's be honest they're not the biggest meals in the world but they they're usually fine i was just particularly hungry on this flight and so I ate my meal, then I ate his meal, and then I saw the um, flight attendant coming, push, coming down, pushing the trolley again. So I, I took the two trays and I put them under my seat, and then I said, um, ex ex "Excuse me, could could I could I get one of those, please?" And she's like, "Oh, sorry, yes, of course." <laughs> and she, she gave me my my third third meal. That's how much I like airplane food i just wondered what's it like as a pilot do you do, do you ever sort of take your own sandwiches because you're fed up with that sort of thing or or does the novelty never wear off yeah i mean there was a time in my life where i was bringing every single meal with me uh, so i was training quite competitively and i was on a really sort of quite a strict diet so i was bringing like three or four tupperware boxes per day of me being away with me so i had basically a suitcase full of tupperware boxes full of meals all weighed out all ready to go which was pretty sad um and pretty unsustainable as well so now i think it's just a balance like i i'm aware that the food on board the aircraft um has an increased amount of salt and sugar in it generally speaking uh, um yes. and and it's the salt that kind of you know if you're training a lot then it doesn't it's not going to harm you too much but you could imagine it's like anything you continue to eat the same thing with something as rich in salt or something like that in it day after day after day then you just have to project what what is the inside of your body going to be like when you're 40 and then 50 and then 60 so i kind of like try and play a long-term game now that if you're doing it once or twice um a month it's not bad it's your body will will utilize what it needs to and it's absolutely fine but um i think if you're doing it on a short haul contract for instance when you're in four or five days a week um and you're eating a couple of meals every single day for five days uh it's probably it's not ideal is it <laughs> no no i hadn't thought of that angle to be honest I was, I was, um what what kind of do you, do you train a lot is it is it important to keep fit as a pilot i mean obviously the long the, the better you look after your body the longer you're going to be in the job 
Yeah, it's it's everything. It's um, it comes down to the amount of rest you get. I mean, especially when you're a long haul pilot, you have nights out of bed, we call them. And so if you can imagine on one trip, you might get one day flight there, but you'll get a, a through the night flight on the way home. And so every single trip you go on, you'll have at least one night where you'll have the full night out of bed. So you can imagine keeping yourself up for a full night and then cracking on with the day again with maybe like an hour sleep here, an hour sleep there. Um, and then having to do that every three or four days. And then obviously when you're landing in Japan, for instance, you're now on a massive time zone different plus eight hours. Then three days later, you're in LA, which is minus eight hours. That's the 16 hour time zone difference. And it puts a big toll on your body. Um, and you only need to read the book, um, Why We Sleep to, to understand the the sort of effects that missing sleep on a regular basis and all of this stuff, everything that impacts health, it's it's when it becomes regular that's the issue. Like your body's pretty good at recovering. And I mm. spoke to a sleep expert on my podcast um, about how we can recover as as pilots or as people that have disrupted work pa- um, sleep patterns. And he said, actually, if you're, if you're getting a really bad disrupted night's sleep, your body is very, very good the night after at understanding what you need the most and dropping you straight into that stage of sleep. And so your body's really good at recovering from that missed night of sleep. It's just, if you're a parent, for instance, or you're working shifts and you're constantly disrupting your sleep pattern, that's when it starts to become a little bit more problematic uh, from a performance point of view or from a health point of view. Scott, questions that I'm sure our friends at home would want me to ask you. Have you ever seen an, any unidentified flying phenomenon of, of any, I'm not, I'm not necessarily talking little green men in sources, but anything that couldn't be explained? I think if I had, then I I wouldn't be smart enough to know what it, you know, to know that it was. Um, <laughs> I mean, no, I, I've seen shooting stars and uh, all the rest of it. But um, I think a lot of the, the, the lot of the things that I've seen that aren't aircraft have generally either been a weather balloon or a drone if you're coming into a busy airspace, you know. Um, so yeah, you can kind of see something whip by and think, what the hell was that? But chances are it was probably a drone if it was at a certain level or um so no i i mean personally if i've seen something like that my brain has automatically decided that it's something that i know what it is so so i'd say no <laughs> and just to finish off because I, I i wouldn't not want to ask you this i um i'm just a great believer in in dream big and never ever dismiss your own dreams if 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 the time's not right just put them on the back burner and they will come true and that's been my life really mm-hmm. and i met someone at a party once it was in new zealand i think we did our first skydive together myself and the, and this girl and we went to a party after and she said oh um we were both backpacking by the way i should say and she said oh i'm a pilot and just immediately i'm fascinated you know this is the funny thing about life i've traveled 85 countries across all seven continents doing crazy stuff you know flying skydiving adventure in the antarctic do you know not one of my mates has ever asked me one single thing about it right Mm. which i think says a lot about life me on the other way scott hence why i started a podcast i find this stuff fascinating i love to live vicariously through other people's lives i don't even need to do it if just tell me about it that is great 
um I, um but so yeah um dream big and so when she told me she was a pilot and she told me a bit about the training and how you have to you know radio into the different air traffic control when you leave one airspace and enter another and this sort of stuff i thought right i've got to do that i've got to do that and, and when i got back to the uk it was a, i picked the right time i had a few quid in the bank didn't cost me a lot i bought a um back in those days before the internet it was magazines flying magazines so i bought a flying magazine turned to the back pages and uh, there's all the classified adverts and there was one there uh trade winds flight school florida and uh it said call this number in england being an english magazine right so i called this chap and he said oh hi chris yeah i'm i'm basically the agent for this guy i'm um this guy ernie in florida he taught me to fly if I run his English operation, just answering the phone, basically, um, pointing people in his direction, he lets me go over there every summer and have a few flights for free. And uh, I said, so how much? And this was back, this was about about 2005 time. And I think he said it was £2,700. Plus, obviously, I had to find the flight to, to Florida. Um, in fact, I think I made it part of a round-the-world ticket. But So I went over there. Um, he was an awful instructor just absolutely i kept smashing the landings in because i didn't know that you don't you don't bring a plane in like the dukes of hazard when they're jumping the general lee and you come down like that i just didn't know scott right and what like why would you i didn't know no you flutter down or you 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 come down on a cushion and land on a cushion of air like like a a swan landing on a lake right so I'm smashing this plane down and he's getting cross with me. I'm getting cross with, with him. And then um, it was an Austri another student, an Austrian chap called Appy. He said, Chris, did he tell you to pull back on the stick? I'm like, no. He said, no, me neither. He said, I had to work. He said, you know, you got to you, you, you flare. You got to flare. And, and, and then it clicked. And then it clicked. And then and, and immediately my skill level jumped up a few notches and i could then come in land on the rear wheel cessna so it was a you know a, a front wheel and, and two middle wheels land on 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 the middle wheels wheelie down the runway and then touch basically touch and go uh, and you felt good when you when you get to control a plane that well there were, there were other pilots there that i i spent all my lunch times chatting to all the pilots of lear jets and um all this kind of thing and they're like chris get up there and stall it i'm like what just get up there and throw it around you you'll work out at <laughs> um so what what i'm getting at is um so i had to pay for a few extra lessons because he, he delayed me with this um this uh um not teaching me how to land so it cost me about three thousand pounds back then and one situation where i i flew to a uh an air airport called Okeechobee and it's one of these ones where it's not it's not manned by air traffic control or it only is at the weekend or something um and I actually landed there at night with my instructor and you 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 click the mic button like like 12 times or something or six times and it puts the lights on down the runway it was just incredible you know my instructor went right click your mic button just click it six times and I went 
and suddenly the lights like star wars go do 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 right in front of you it's just amazing anyway one time i flew to okeechobee as a solo you know i was flying solo then and i was practicing my landings did something really stupid which was just a big learning curve i thought no one was around scott so i'm i'm landing one way spinning the Cessna around and then just taking off the other way the w- the wind was fairly sort of you know neutral and as I did this about four five or six times and I a voice came over the my headphones um I can't remember what my calls call sign was it was like no November five zero Bravo are you intending to take to take off in that direction again and I was like oh shit there's other traffic I was like um you know roger yeah i think the the i think the wind the wind's changed <laughs> I, was like, I felt so <laughs> i felt so stupid but also a bit reckless you know mm-hmm. and when i turned around to take off to go back to um fort pierce which is where the flight school was i suddenly realized it was dark it just got dark and i'm a student pilot you're not supposed to fly at night and i'm taking off scott and i'm panicking what do i do do I go back to Okeechobee, land and sleep in an airplane all night to, to avoid the alligators? Do I continue? So I I continued. I saw the, you know, the beacon of the airport, whatever that, the, the white flashy thing. I saw it in the distance. And as I approached, I gingerly got on the radio and um, you know, I spoke to the tower. And he's like, yeah, sure, you know, come in. And he gave me a a, a place in the pattern. And then he came back on the radio and went, no, nah, ignore the place and party. He said, just come straight in for a heads on landing. I'm like, whoa. And um, I did the best landing of my life. Well, my short flying life on, a, on um, an airstrip designed for like DC 10s and that kind of stuff with all the lights down it. And I'm coming in in a little Cessna um, and the guy on the radio because i think they didn't have ground control at night it was only the tower something like that he, he got back and he, and he said yes and uh your is it the ramp where you park mm. yeah he said your ramp is da, 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 if you just turn and he talked me all the way to the ramp and i was like yes <laughs> i thought i thought i was going to go to student pilot prison <laughs> but um but it's funny. But, sorry go on i was going to say it's funny though because i bet you did the best landing ever because your mind was so full with am i going to get in trouble oh, i shouldn't be flying in the dark what are they thinking of me is anyone waiting for me that you probably didn't even think about overthinking the the landing and so the landing just becomes so much more easier when you don't overthink it's like anything right when you're not overthinking something it's normally when you're at your best at it i was in ecstasy like mm. i i thought i was really in trouble you know and i mean i had flown at night but obviously only with my instructor and when he just came on and made no big deal he didn't care he did i suppose he didn't even know i'm a student well of course he doesn't know i'm a student um he might have known from looking at the you know the cool sign of the cessna that this is a student but he was and and yeah i was just so happy scott <laughs> that was great but your story um oh and the other thing about getting um an faa license so that's federal aviation authority folks that's american as opposed to a CAA, a civil one in the UK, is I've got my license for life now. So if I wanted to go next week and fly in America, all I have to do is is probably, I think, retake a medical, show my license to the flight school. 
they'll probably ask me to do a check flight or I wouldn't do it. I'd, I'd get more lessons, obviously. But technically, if I was up to speed with it all, I can just go and fly next week. And the American license, you only lose it when your health, when you don't pass the medical, basically. Um, did you learn to fly abroad or did you learn to fly in the UK? Yeah, so I did my PPL in the north of England, actually, as part of my university degree. Um, and then I also did some university air squadron flying. So that was in the north. I went to Leeds University. So I'd by that point, I'd already done a bunch of flying, got my private pilot's license and done some military flying um, before I started my commercial license. Um, and then the commercial license was a British, well, English based company that did predominantly all of their flying all of their initial flying over in New Zealand. So I did about 10 months of flying over in New Zealand in Hamilton. Uh, and it was it was incredible. It's very, very similar in terms of the weather systems that you have in the UK. But obviously, the airspace is completely empty uh, in like relatively speaking. So you had a really good big airport that you'd fly into. Um, it was a great setup. And all you all you had to focus on while you were there is flying and, and passing a few exams. So it's great. Yeah, I did my very first flight in the UK just as a taster um, before, you know, before booking the, 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 the course. But I used to think, my God, how like in Florida, you get the weather every day. So you get sun, bright sun. And at the end of the day, all the cloud heads start building. And that's when you've you've got to be on your toes. But to be honest, they kind of form a column. You can you actually can sort of fly around them. Not not that I'd want want to do that but in the uk was it hard to get the weather windows i think by the time i mean yes when when i was doing my ppl it was tough you'd spend days you'd get up in the morning you'd look outside and go i'm not flying but as all student pilots do you still have to go there you still have to sit around you have to do your met briefs you have to do you know plan your courses or plan your um flight for the day so you've got to, you've done all the planning you've got up early you've you know you're there and then you kind of you're looking outside and you're looking for a little bit of a break and every 30 minutes there's a new basically a report that comes through a weather forecast that comes through um that tells you what the cloud base is and what the visibility is and you can kind of see oh, are we are we getting closer to going so a lot of the times you you get really really close to going and then the weather would go back again and you'd be back to not doing it again and you'd be there for like eight hours wired thinking oh, i'm going to go up in like half an hour when it gets better and you never would so yeah i said god you used to spend you used to spend days and days just like not flying which was which is pretty brutal but but yeah, once once you'd um, once you'd got your initial qualifications, you then had to do your instrument ratings and stuff, and that was when you could go up in a lot lot worse weather, I guess, in terms of you didn't need visibility um, as such or certain cloud bases because you could obviously fly through it. Is that terrifying though, flying through cloud when you can't see anything, just relying on the instrument? Do the instruments tell you if there's something coming the other way? Uh, yeah, so that's that's the main thing about the um that flying in instrument conditions is that you ha you will have instruments that um will certainly tell you where you are a lot more accurately um and yeah some some of the systems depending on how fancy it is will tell you if there's other aircraft around um but yeah generally speaking you'll have a lot more reliance on your instruments than you are when you're visual flight rules where you're just looking out the window and making sure you're in trim and you know making sure that everything is sort of set up and settled here you're you're making sure you're very much 
exactly where you want to be at the exact time and and everything is based on a, a completely different scan of instruments inside the flight deck as opposed to outside and one la- um one last question scott what uh, what equipment did you fly when you did your commercial rating so i started i actually did a 737 course in the sim which is what you call an mcc course like a multi-crew course which is the thing you do after you've got your um, main cpl your commercial pilot's license you then need to go and get a airline transport pilot's license which is basically where you operate as a two crew so you go from being what you do completely on your own planning everything naving everything doing all of the flying and all of the the sort of like navigation to having a two crew operation where you're both sharing the tasks and feeding in with each other um so i did a 737 course in the sim and then my first aircraft was the a the airbus a320 um and that was where my first job was mm. and then i've flew that for two different airlines before going on to the dreamliner so i've, I've flown airbus and and boeing and scott before we say goodbye give a shout can you just explain and give a shout out for your coaching course yeah, absolutely. Thank, thanks for thanks for uh, highlighting. Yeah, mm-hmm. so my coaching course is essentially set up for people that had high performing careers where they had really strong identities, and they're looking now to make a transition, and they don't want this to be an average transition into just an average job. Like you know, I see a lot of people coming from the military, for instance, like a lot of officers that are transitioning, and all they're being told is go into London, get yourself a consulting job. And for people like us that operate outside the box a little bit more, we you don't want to do a nine to five. You want something a bit different or a bit you know a, a bit of a different vision for your life. So um, I set this I set this coaching up. I went and got trained by the world's best high performer, uh, the high, high performance coach, Brendan Bouchard out in the States. Um, and then I sort of developed my own method for getting people to make really powerful transitions from high identity careers. So pilots, doctors, military people, and those that want to operate outside the box, operate above their average again, and transition them into thinking differently and going after bigger, bigger and better things almost. Um, and so I use a lot of proven science um, from a lot of the high performance techniques that have been proven um, by the high performance institution and then a bunch of my own stuff that I've developed and that's where the podcast comes into as I don't just rely on my stuff and the stuff that's out there in science I then also speak to some of the world's highest performers in their field so elite military operatives, special forces guys. Um, We've had Olympic gold medalists. We've had Formula One drivers, CEOs, um, record breakers, like the list goes on. We've we've got some truly incredible people, England rugby players. Uh, And so I get an insight from them into what helped them transition or think about life differently so that they could still continue to operate at their best. Brilliant. And it's Performance Hackers, your podcast, Will. We'll put all your links and your social media below, Scott, so people can catch up with you or book Thanks, you for man. coaching. Mate, it's been absolutely brilliant. I thoroughly enjoyed our, our chat. Stay on the line, Scott, so I can thank you properly. But on behalf of the podcast, just massive thank you for coming and sharing your your story and your experience. Uh, man, great to be here. Thanks for having me on. To our friends at home, if you could like and subscribe, um, click the notification bell. Support more podcasts like this. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Much love. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. 
Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username Chris Thrall. Instagram Chris Thrall. Thank you.